Good evening and welcome to Socrates in the City. My name is Eric Metaxas and I will be your host this evening. You can make your way to the salad bar and I'll take your drink orders. No. Um, now, I want to say this up front. I'm wearing blue and white stripes. Does anybody know why? Okay, I see a, a Hellenic hand was raised in the back. How many people here are of Hellenic origin? Anybody here of Hellenic origin? Greeks? Saris? Stephanie? And we've got a few Greeks here. I'm wearing the, uh, the blue and white stripes because today is March 25th. Uh, which is Greek Independence Day. It's just like July 4th uh, in this country, except instead of red, white, and blue, the Greek flag is just white and blue. Uh, I'm not sure what, what the red stands for uh, in the United States. Probably the, uh, the national debt at this point. Um, but uh, the Greek flag is blue and white. Today is Ecosipemti Martillo, the 25th, 188th anniversary. We haven't hit the bicentennial yet, but I just want to give a shout-out to my peeps. How you doing, peeps? Yeah. Um, now, I'm always curious, how many of you are here at Socrates in the city for the first time? Would you raise your hands? Wow. Okay. Well, then, um, for those of you, maybe I should say a word who we are. For those of you who don't know what Socrates in the city is, just a couple of words of introduction for the newcomers. Um, in a nutshell, is the sound okay? It seems like it's like reverberating. Is this too loud or something? It's okay? Um, yeah. In a nutshell, uh, for the newcomers who don't know, um, Socrates in the City is a UFO cult. Um, and tonight, after our speaker is finished, we're going to be picked up by the mothership and whisked away from the earth, which will be destroyed at midnight. Uh, or whenever the interest on the national debt becomes greater than our military budget which I think may be 2012 at the outside, but we're leaving tonight just to play it safe, okay? Everybody on the same page? Uh, so I hope you're all packed, and uh, I'm sure most of you knew to be packed, and uh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun together starting a new civilization on, a, on another planet. Um, and I should say that the planet we're going to is inhabited by some kind of crab-like like beings um, that are very angry and they kind of snap at you, but... Look, the earth is being destroyed. We've got to take a shot. It's a gamble, but we're, we're in this together, so just so you know. Um, so that's what uh, we are at Socrates in the City. We're a UFO cult. But that, of course, is not the public face of Socrates in the City. That's not what we tell the people when we're asking for grant money or anything like that. Um, uh, I wouldn't say that UFO stuff in public. People would only laugh at us. Um, so in public, we claim Socrates in the City is a speaker's forum where we ask the big questions about the meaning of life and so on. And of course, we really do that, and we're going to do it tonight, but just keep in mind that it's only a cover for the UFO cult stuff that we're doing. You, okay, you got that, right? So uh, I should say now, tonight we're speaking about some cells, you know about that. Uh, it's a pretty rare occurrence that current events coincide with the big questions that we ask at Socrates in the City. Um, because we'd like to be sort of beyond the news. Uh, we don't, we're not anti-news, but we really we want to ask the big questions without uh, constantly referring to what's going on in the culture uh, and in the news. But tonight's topic, stem cells, is something that is, of course, in the news right now. Uh, so uh, in a funny way, it's a particular privilege to hear from Dr. Hurlbut tonight. But before I introduce him, just a couple of quick announcements. First of all, Socrates in the City success story uh, some of you remember a few months ago we heard from Dr. Michael Ward of Cambridge. Anybody remember that? Talk, spoke about Planet Narnia. 
some of you were there. Um, he, he wrote a book called Planet Narnia. Uh, it's a spectacular literary discovery. It's one of these things that um, I think when you grasp the full import of it, you're absolutely amazed. But uh, in a nutshell, the Narnia Chronicles written by C.S. Lewis, there's seven books, and people always thought that there must be some reason he wrote seven books. Um, and the top C.S. Lewis scholars for over 50 years applied themselves to figuring it out. Nobody figured it out until a few years ago, Michael Ward actually figured it out. And it is staggering. It's a real discovery. So we thought we've got to have him at Socrates in the City. He came. Uh, he spoke. Uh, he was absolutely delightful. But the success story is that I introduced him during that time to another Socrates in the City a speaker named Norman Stone. Uh, and they were just married yesterday. Just kidding. That's a joke. It's a joke. Come on. Um, I introduced him to Norman Stone, who's a film director. It's not funny. Who's a film director. And Norman uh, has also been a part of Socrates and City. He did the first Shadowlands for the BBC a number of years ago. I introduced them, and Norman came up with the idea to do a documentary on this planet Narnia and on Michael Ward. And since then and now, uh, he made the decision to do it. He raised the money to do it. He filmed the whole thing. I'm actually in it, but it's good. And uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to air on the BBC uh, at Easter, so in, in just a few weeks. So this is just an amazing thing, and it came right out of Socrates in the City. I'm very excited about it. You can see the trailer on the, well, you can go to my Facebook page, or you can go to the Socrates in the City uh, website or Facebook page, where we'll, we'll have to have it posted shortly. But if you want to see it right now, you can go to my Facebook page. But I'm just, I'm very excited about that, and that, to me, is a Socrates success story. Another quick announcement before I introduce Dr. But um, if you buy any book tonight, the, uh, the paper with the spine, that's a book. Uh, if you buy any book uh, anywhere over there, you get a free Socrates in the City CD of your choosing. So just keep that in mind. We sell the CDs for $10, so you get a free CD if you buy a book. I just wanted to, to let you know that. Um, Okay, finally we come to tonight's topic. The science and politics of stem cells, is there a way forward? Uh, Our speaker, as you know, is Dr. William Hurlbut. Now, when I say Dr. William Hurlbut, I should say that in this case, the doctor means that our speaker is an actual physician, a medical doctor. Now, a lot of Socrates speakers put DR, doctor, in front of their names, as you've doubtless noticed. They're very proud to do that. But you know what? If you have like a rash under your arm, you know, you're not going to bother Sir John Polkinghorne about it. You know, he might call himself a doctor, and he does, but he doesn't want to hear about your underarm rash. He's a member of the Royal Society. He's a knight of the British Empire, and he and many other Socrates speakers feel that, frankly, they're way above having to deal with such things with all of their fancy degrees and honors. They think that they live in a world that's, you know, somehow above looking at your underarm rash in a public place. Um, So to them, and this is the other speakers, not Dr. William Hulbutt, who is a medical doctor, if I haven't mentioned that. To them, your rash, or let me say, our rashes, (laughs) are an embarrassing reminder of our common humanity, and they just don't want to know about it. But ladies and gentlemen... William Hurlbut is different. He's a real medical doctor, and he isn't afraid. He is not afraid to take a look at your rash. He's not afraid. 
He's not afraid to prescribe salves and unguents and medicated creams. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty. That's why he's here tonight. Because of a lot of us, a lot of us in this room, let's be honest, we have developed mysterious underarm rashes. And we need to get answers. That's what Socrates is all about. We ask the big questions. And, uh, and we're getting, to, some of us, you know who you are. Raise your hand if you have an underarm rash. Come on. You know who you are. We're starting to get desperate. We want answers. And we, we got the man here. This is a medical doctor. So um, thank you, uh, Dr. Hulbert, for agreeing to take a look at our rashes. Uh, if you have a rash at the end of the whole thing here, uh, we're going to gather in the room over there where they, where they prepare the food. And Dr. Uh, Hurlbut is going to roll up his sleeves and, you know, he's going he's to get us the answers we're looking for. So I just wanted to establish that he is, in fact, a medical doctor. And I think I've, I've done that. So, good. Now, he does have some other credentials, which are probably worth mentioning before I turn the podium over to him and, and run for my life. And um, I should say that Dr. Hulbert is a consulting professor at the Neuroscience Institute at Stanford. And uh, he has consistently voted one of the professors that students actually want to listen to. So I think that's encouraging. Um, his primary areas of interest involve the ethical issues associated with advancing biomedical technology. Uh, with the biological basis of moral awareness, with studies in the integration of theology and the philosophy of biology. He's also the author of numerous publications on science and ethics. In addition to teach teaching at Stanford, he has worked with NASA on projects in astrobiology, and he's a member of the Chemical and Biological Warfare Working Group at the Center for International Security and Cooperation. Uh, since 2002, he served on the President's Council on Bioethics. And who hasn't? Am I right? He's the, he's the author of Altered Nuclear Transfer, a proposed technological solution to the moral controversy over embryonic stem cell research. And he is with us here this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. William Hurlbut. Well, thanks, Eric. Since you're really about all the really big questions, maybe we should hold a little clinic right now. I, I brought some stem cell cures. <laughs> so it's great to be here. I, I actually feel kind of home because I, I grew up out in Westchester. My father uh, practiced medicine, had a private office on 66 in Lexington and right across from the armory. So I feel like the magnetic waves, the longitude and latitude's right. Here with old friends, I, I'm, it's great to see uh, people like Father Benedict Rochelle, Nigel Cameron, and always great to see, see Mark and, and Ashley, and it's wonderful to be here. So we have a really uh, important and timely subject tonight, um, a very serious subject. I think we, we literally are on the edge of a different planet. Um, we, what will... What will be different? Well, some people promise enormous positive changes, and others are worried about very negative changes. And I think both are possible, and we need to do what we can to make sure that we get the right changes. So just to get you in the mood, I want to begin with um, a little film clip that's a little bit old. It was 2006 election, but it'll get you to where we need to go. Next summer, I'm going on a camping trip with my friends. On my way home, 
I'll be in a car accident and I'll be paralyzed for the rest of my life. In 20 years, I'll have Alzheimer's. I won't recognize my husband or my kids. Next week, my mommy and dad are gonna find out that I have diabetes. This is my congressman. Congressman Don Sherwood. He voted against federal funding for stem cell research. Is he a doctor? Is he a scientist? Why did Congressman Sherwood bet my life that he knows best? Help me. Help me. Who knows? Maybe I'm your mother. Maybe I'm your grandson. Maybe I'm your little girl. How do you know I'm not you? Stem cell research could save lives. Maybe yours or your family's. Someone you love. Only Congressman Sherwood said no. How come he thinks he gets to decide who lives and who dies? Who is he? Majority action is responsible for the content of this advertising. Okay, well, I'm not quite sure what happened to old, poor old Congressman Sherwood, but I think he lost. <laughs> so, we're at a crucial moment in the process of scientific discovery. The dramatic advances in molecular biology throughout the 20th century have culminated in the sequencing of the human genome and increasing knowledge about how to grow cells in laboratories. These studies were accomplished by breaking down organic systems into their component parts, studying them as biochemical processes, all in the test tube. Now, however, as we move on from genomics to proteomics, the study of proteins, we've returned to the study of developmental biology. We've got the components, the ingredients of life. Now we're learning how they're put together to produce a living organism. This means that we're studying again, whole living beings. When applied to human biology, this inquiry reopens the most fundamental questions concerning the relationship between the material form and the moral meaning of developing life. Because the easiest and the most fundamental place to study living organisms is from their beginning. The current conflict over embryonic stem cell research is just the first in a series of very difficult controversies that we will We'll need, for which we will need to define with clarity and precision the moral boundaries we seek to defend. And this is probably the most important thing I'll say tonight. Embryonic stem cell research was the poster child for a much larger agenda of, cons of possible uses of embryos and moral issues. So what else are we going to have to deal with? Questions of human-animal hybrids, um, such as the use of an animal egg and a human nucleus to do a cloning questions of parthenogenesis, the activation of an egg that has some developmental powers, um, projects for the creation of laboratory production of tissues, organs, and a wide range of other emerging technologies. These will all continue to challenge our definitions of human life. These are clearly not just questions for science alone, but for the full breadth of human wisdom and experience. Now, with regard to embryonic stem cell research, the scientific arguments for going forward are strong. The convergence of these advances that I mentioned are delivering unprecedented powers for research into the most basic questions concerning human development. Beyond the obvious benefit of understanding the cause of congenital defects, defects you're born with, 150,000 kids a year in America are born with congenital 
defects, birth defects. Beyond the value of understanding what causes those during development, it's becoming increasingly evident that certain pathologies, diseases that manifest only later in life, are influenced or even have their origins in early development. Furthermore, fundamental developmental processes, including the formation and functioning of stem cells and their disordered dynamics, seem to be at work in a range of adult pathologies, including some forms of cancer. Yet, from a moral perspective, there is controversy. This is from a patient advocacy group. We fight because lives can't wait. There's a certain irony in that, isn't there? Because, on the other hand, there are lives at stake. Clearly, there are moral issues here. This is an eight-cell embryo on the sharp tip of a pin. First of all, it's important to acknowledge the many scientific projects for which human embryos could be used. Beyond their destruction for the procurement of embryonic stem cells, some fear the industrial-scale production of living human embryos for a wide range of research into natural development, toxicology, drug testing, genetic disease. There's many, many uses we could make of embryos where there are no moral concerns. Lord Alton, a member of the House of Lords in the UK, told me that, and this was five years ago, he said they'd already used over 100,000 embryos in research, many of which had been actually created for the research. Beyond that, there's concern about the commodification and commercialization of eggs and embryos and worry about the implications of ongoing research to create an artificial endometrium, a kind of artificial womb for growing them longer. Uh, cloned embryos, for example. We could grow them longer. I'm going to talk about that more. We could get later stage cells, tissues, and organs. Furthermore, from a social and political perspective, the emerging patchwork of policies on both the national and the international level is threatening to create a situation in which there will be commercial motivations for outsourcing ethically controversial or even illegal research. Likewise, there will be medical tourism. People will go elsewhere to get cures that they want. In countries like America and Australia, where uh, certain things are legal and others are not, what will happen is, and, and with the recent executive order by the president, what is going to happen now is there will be NIH-funded research. By the way, you all know, I assume, that there was no ban on embryonic stem cell research under President Bush. There was a, a limit to certain lines created before he took office, and there was no cons constraints on the use of private money or state money, at least none, none issued by the federal government. So there were constraints on anything that would involve the, the destruction of more embryos to get lines. That was what the so-called ban was about. But different countries have different rules on this. But what's going to happen, what was the case and what's increasingly going to be the case, is there'll be a patchwork of policies. And what will happen now that there's approval of federal funding is that 10, 15, 20 years from now, many patients will enter the hospital with moral qualms about the research foundations on which their cures have been developed. What was traditionally the sanctuary of compassionate care, our hospitals, I mean, at the most vulnerable and sensitive moments of human life are increasingly becoming an arena of controversy and conflict. Clearly, both sides in this debate are defending something of importance. 
Both are defending important human goods, the advances in biomedical science and the defense of the dignity of developing life. A purely political solution will leave our country bitterly divided, eroding the social support and sense of noble purpose that's essential for biomedical science. Yet this support is crucial if stem cell science is to be advanced. So we have a really big problem, an ethical problem, social, and a political problem. The current conflict in the political arena is damaging both to science and to religion, as religion is caricatured in the debates. And it's, I think, a violation of our whole sense of national strength, which is positive pluralism, seeking positive resolutions. Toward the end of what I'm going to say tonight, I want to discuss this more specifically because, as was mentioned in the introduction, I've put forward a proposal to solve this, and I believe we can without having to fight about it. But uh, let me lay out before I do that the dynamics that are at stake in this debate and show you why I think it is so important that we solve it. So I want to begin by making the case for the moral the seriousness of the moral concern. Any evaluation of the moral significance of human life must take into account the full procession of continuity and change that's essential for its development. With the act of conception, a new life is initiated. With a distinct genetic endowment that organizes and guides the growth of a unique and unrepeatable human being. The gametes, the sperm and the egg, Although alive as cells are not living beings, they are instrumental organic agents of the parents. The joining of the gametes brings into, ex brings into existence an entirely different kind of entity. It delivers the reality of a living human organism. With regard to fundamental biological meaning and, I believe, moral significance, the act of fertilization is a leap from zero to everything. In both structure and function, the zygote, which is the one-celled embryo, and all subsequent embryonic stages differ from all other cells and tissues of the body. They contain within themselves the organizing principle for the full development of a human being. The very word organism implies organization, an overarching principle that binds the parts and processes of life into a harmonious whole. As a living being, an organism is an integrated, self-developing, and self-maintaining unity under the governance of an imminent plan, something that comes from within the living organismal being. For an embryonic organism, this implies an inherent potency, an engaged and effective potential with a drive in the direction of the mature form. By its very nature, an embryo is a developing being, its wholeness is defined by both its manifest expression and its latent potential. It is the phase of human life in which the whole, as the unified principle of growth, precedes and produces its organic parts. In a manufactured process, you don't really have a product until it's finished. An embryo, on the other hand, is a whole complete human being at the earliest stages, and then it produces its parts. The philosopher Robert Joyce explains, living beings come into existence all at once and then gradually unfold to themselves and to the world what they already but only incipiently are. To be a human organism 
is to be a whole living member of the species Homo sapiens, with a human present and a human future, evident in the intrinsic potential for the manifestation of the species' typical form. Joyce continues, no living being can become anything other than what it already essentially is. It is this implicit whole with its inherent potency that endows the embryo with continuity of human identity from the moment of conception all the way through to its natural death. And therefore, from this perspective, inviolable moral status across all of its existence. The principle of this analysis applies whether you create it in a dish, in the womb, or by some cloning or some other process we haven't invented yet. Now, why doesn't everybody agree with that? Well, since I think that's true, I'm not quite sure. But I only say that half facetiously because I realize this is a very difficult subject. What are the arguments on the other side of them? Let's go through very briefly. I wish I had more time because I really explained this to you. They're very interesting arguments. But three arguments are currently put forward for, in the United Kingdom for the 14-day limit on embryonic development. In other words, they'll use embryos only up to the end of the 14th day. Those three arguments are lack of differentiation, lack of individuation since it can still twin, and its pre-implantation status. In other words, it's not really a human being until it's implanted in the womb. These date back to the 1986 Warnock Commission in the United Kingdom, headed by philosopher Mary Warnock. But this commission explicitly acknowledged the continuous nature of embryonic development, stating, quote, there is no particular part of the development process, let me start again, there is no particular part of the developmental process that is more important than any other. In a recent memoir, Mary Warnock herself discussed the utilitarian grounding of her commission's analysis, acknowledging that her committee's task was to, quote, recommend a policy that might allow the sort of medical and scientific progress that was in the public interest. That, of course, is the argument in the video that I showed you, the argument from suffering and from self-evidently real suffering human beings where there is no controversy about their moral status. That becomes the prominent argument, suffering. Indeed, I think that these arguments were not good arguments that she gave, those three arguments I gave a minute ago, and I'll explain that briefly. What I believe is that embryology has advanced to the point now, 20 years later, where we can say that the grounding of the Warnock Commission's conclusions was wrong. Okay, I wish I had more time to tell you about this, but fundamentally, differentiation, we now know that at least by the eight-cell stage, probably the four- and two-cell stage, there are already differences between the cells. So differentiation is already happening. Twinning, we now can see more clearly that twinning is not really an innate, innate tendency, but it results from a dis, some disruption of embryos, separating cells, each of which then becomes a separate identity. It's more like budding off. As Aristotle said, if you have a worm and you cut it in two, you didn't, now you have two worms. It doesn't mean you didn't have one to begin with. And finally, implantation. It's a funny argument. In fact, there's a nourishment that goes on all the way through, even in the, when the egg's fertilized in the fallopian tubes. It's being nourished by the mother, and it continues to be nourished after implantation. Implantation just happens so that there can be a circulation that can deliver uh, nut nutrition and oxygen into a larger organism where diffusion wouldn't work. So implantation must be, then be viewed as just another step in a continuum of ongoing intimate dependence 
This, is, this was to show you differentiation. This was to show you twinning. You know, implantation, fertilization happens in the fallopian tubes, then it goes down in plants. So implantation must be viewed as just another step in a continuum of ongoing intimate dependence all along the trajectory of natural development that begins with fertilization, continues in implantation, continues after birth and infancy, and of course we know all the way up to adulthood, doesn't it, parents? There's uh, an interactive dependence between offspring and children. So this continuity implies, to my opinion, no moral marker at implantation. Now, those are the arguments given, but there are hidden arguments being launched slowly but surely coming up, and beware of this. And I want to make this very prominent in what I say to you, because those arguments were functional arguments for the early use of embryos, but now we're starting to see arguments for the later use of embryos creeping in. So let me explain what I mean by that. Most other arguments beyond 14 days relate in some way to this onset of a specific function or capacity. But arguments for change in moral status based on function are at once the most difficult to refute but also to defend. So the first and most obvious problem is that the essential function and even their minimal criteria and, and age or stage of onset are diverse and arbitrarily assigned. Generally, they relate to some, some, something like the onset of sentience, whatever that is, or awareness of pain, or some apparently unique human cognitive capacity like consciousness. Well, since we don't know what consciousness is, we don't quite know when it starts. But be that as it may, um, this approach raises a number of very disturbing ethical questions. If human moral status is based on actual manifest function, then does more of that function give an individual life a higher moral value? And what are we to make of the parallel functional capacities in animals? I mean, I don't know if you think that, that uh, cows and pigs are conscious, but... but um, Gosh, what are they? Um, yet we routinely sacrifice them for food and medical research. Furthermore, what becomes of human moral status with the degeneration or disappearance of such functions? While we might argue that our relational obligations, maybe how much money we would spend or time or energy, they might change a little bit with changing status physically, like we may not spend as much money on this world guy as we would on a three-year-old. Our relational obligations may change, but like with senile dementia, but we would not still think this is less of a human being. We would not sanction a utilitarian calculus and the purely instrumental use of such a person, no matter how promising the medical benefits might be. So something's going on with regard to our attitudes toward the embryo. See, more fundamentally, even when we think about these onset of these human typifying characteristics, from a scientific perspective, we have to recognize there is no meaningful moment when we can definitively designate the biological origins of a human characteristic, such as consciousness. Does um, Consciousness doesn't come on like a switch turning on. If anything, it's more like a dimmer switch. You know? <laughs> the light of consciousness emerges. What is consciousness? Where does it start? What, what, what phase does it start? We just don't know. The human being is an inseparable psychophysical unity. Our thinking 
is in and through our bodily being, and thus the roots of our consciousness reach deep into our development. The earliest stages of human development serve as the indispensable and enduring foundations for the powers of freedom and self-awareness that reach their fullest expression in the adult form. I threw these slides in last night just because I want to tell you about something fantastic. This is a recent study, and you can sort of read it to yourselves. This, this explains that they did kinematic studies on a 22-week-old fetus. Now, this is within the realm of the 24-week sanctioned abortion uh, in the United States. And they found out that these 22-week-olds, the way they move seems to indicate intentionality, awareness of their body. If they're reaching toward their eye, they're more careful. If they're reaching to the back of their head, they're not more careful. The kinematics of motion already seem to indicate consciousness and intention. We should be very sobered by these findings. Here's the other half of it. So, with respect to fundamental moral status, the human being is an embodied being whose intrinsic dignity is inseparable from its full procession of life and always present in its varied stages of existence. This conclusion is consistent with 2,500 years of medical science. As recently as 1948, the physician's oath in the Declaration of Geneva echoing the enduring traditions of Hippocratic medicine proclaimed, I will maintain the utmost respect for human life from the time of conception. What a change in 60 years. So, this brings us to the... Oh, and by the way, you may think that, that this is uh, religion talking. No. This is a comment by Jamie Thompson, the guy that isolated embryonic stem cells. If human embryonic stem cell research doesn't make you at least a little bit uncomfortable, you have not thought about it enough. Now, he's in favor of using embryos, as is uh, Shinya Yamanaka, the guy that did this so-called conversion of, stem cell, of adult cells, skin cells, to embryonic state. I just talked with Shinya three days ago, and he affirmed that he does think we should use embryos in the early stages of their development for scientific research. But nonetheless, he says, when I saw, and he told me this again when I was talking with him, he said, when I saw the embryo, I suddenly realized there was such a small difference between it and my daughter's. I thought we can't keep destroying embryos for our research. There must be another way. So this brings us to the recent executive order and the question about the IVF embryos and beyond. So let's talk first about the IVF embryos, you know, the ones that are going to get thrown away anyway. This is a dilemma. There are an estimated one million embryos left over from in vitro fertilization created to give life. They are now suspended in time and space and the uncertainty of a conflicted fate. In this canister, in the Stanford Assisted Reproductives Technology Clinic, um, there are 300 embryos, and there are about a dozen of these, all clustered in one little corner. The water in their cells has been replaced with glycerol, and they're immersed in liquid nitrogen at a temperature of minus 200 degrees Celsius. I joke my friend who runs the lab, this must be the densest population in human history. <laughs> but the future of these embryos is a poignant problem. In some cases, such embryos have been implanted as long as 12 and a half years after being frozen, including after some of their twins were already implanted. 
you know, we were fertilized the same day, but you're 12 years older than I am. That's how strange that is. Not only that, but there have been custody battles over frozen embryos after divorces and even a dispute over inheritance after a wealthy couple died and left several uh, frozen embryonic heirs. Needless to say, many people stepped forward and wanted to adopt them along with their inheritance. But most of these embryos, these one million frozen embryos, don't have such privileged prospects. They are cast-offs destined to be discarded or disaggregated in the service of medical science. I like this slide because it's sort of the mystery of the liquid nitrogens coming out there in the mysterious state. But nobody knows what to do with them, or at least the big controversy, even for the parents who own them. So this is a warning to us of how even the best intentions of our science and our medicine, unconstrained by the forethought of moral consideration, even the best of our intentions, slip slowly along the gradient of utility. Each of these embryos, once the precious promise of a happy baby, is now relegated to the category of mere matter, raw material in a larger program of scientific progress. However much we may agree or disagree with the process that put them there, we should acknowledge it's a difficult dilemma. Produced with a healing purpose, the good intentions of overcoming the sorrow of infertility, they are now abandoned to a project of a completely different character. Well, some say if there's a moral controversy, it's upstream in the process that put them there. And now, since they're destined to die, what further harm can you do to them? Well, it's not quite that simple, is it? If, if you're going to use them in a utilitarian process, then what, what can you do with them? Can you, 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 perhaps you don't know this. Most of them are not at the stage you can get embryonic stem cells, so you have to put them back in the culture dish. You know, like Hansel and Gretel, you have to fatten them up a little, get them ready to be harvested. That sort of feels weird, keeping something alive so that you can kill it. At least it does to me. But the new executive order allows the use, at least, of these IVF embryos produced and destined to be discarded. So that's the first level of controversy. Yet even as these embryos become accepted policy, the use of these embryos, as it, the policy is now officially changed. Now we're beginning to, we're drawing up guidelines, we're going to use these IVF embryos, at least the stem cells that come from them. The policy, by the way, requires that they be harvested off-site, not with NIH funds, because there's, as I'll tell you in a minute, there's a Dickey Amendment forbids the destruction, federal funding of destruction of embryos. But they're going to let them be destroyed off-site and then bring them back into NIH as cell lines. So we have to think carefully. As this becomes our policy, we should be aware of something more complicated that's below the surface. We all feel it, I think. There's been a slow but steady shift in our underlying attitude toward human life. As we gain the powers of comprehension and control over our most basic biology, there's a transformation, not just in our physical being, but in our whole sense of who we are, of our place and purpose within the natural order. As we take increasing instrumental control over natural life processes, our whole attitude is changing, and we are losing a sense of cautionary reverence and respect. With each step, however benevolent the original intention may be, with each step, there is moral danger, a fracturing of matter and meaning, 
that breaks the coherence and natural connections of life. With each step, the original radiance and vitality of the cosmos, its order, beauty, and coherent moral meaning, are obscured by the conviction that all of living nature is mere matter and information to be reshuffled and reassigned for projects of the human will. This instrumental use of human life reaches its most ominous extension as we relegate the human embryo to the status of a resource as raw material in the service of our project in the mastery over nature. Such an instrumental use of human life opens a long corridor indeed. For one thing, many of these embryos, as I said, are not in the developmental stage yet for, develop, for taking embryonic stem cells, so we have to culture them. But now, will we want to use them for other laboratory projects? Well, at least to study the culture medium. That would help IVF, too, by the way, if we could just perfect the culture medium, which may be associated with the reports of congenital defects. So there's a good argument there from suffering. Uh, 30 years ago, when IVF first came on the scene, these, are, these projects were argued for. Uh, they saw there was scientific benefit, and there would be scientific benefit from studying these embryos. And so the NIH put together a panel, and they made recommendations to President Clinton, including, yes, use the IVF embryos that are going to get destroyed, and yes, if you need to create a few to study projects like fertilization, that's okay too. And Clinton said, no, we will not create embryos to destroy them. But he did say yes to the use of the ones that were going to get discarded. But Congress stepped in and passed the Dickey Amendment that forbids federal funding of projects that in create, endanger, or destroy human embryos. And that's been the law of our land up until now and still is. It was just passed again. It's a rider on the budget every year. So as with abortion, IVF in all its clinical forms and its experimental forms would be a private matter. Um, the creation and implantation of embryos, the disposal of embryos, could be done as a personal choice with private or state money, but not with taxpayer dollars at the federal level. That's what the argument's about. So now we're here with a very compelling project for scientific advance with embryonic stem cells. So will we now retreat and override this decision of the Dickey? And there was an editorial in Nature magazine this very day calling for that. Um, so will we now retreat? Or is embryonic stem cell research the only project serious enough for this exception to the longstanding federal policy? Well, uh, even if it is, how many embryos will we use? But surely it isn't, because there's lots of questions. Even if it is, how long can we use them? But all the other uses of embryos will be very powerful arguments for creating embryos, for keeping embryos alive longer, and for even genetically modifying embryos and studying them. So there are many, many projects left out there. If, if we endorse the course of action and we say, okay, we'll, use, we'll do what England does, we'll keep it alive only to 14 days and we won't go beyond 14 days, then we're up against the strange question of why, because those scientific arguments don't work anymore. As discussed earlier, I say the designation of 14 days as the moral boundary for embryo experimentation is really in the category of a received tradition. There's no real scientific justification for it. It's almost like a superstition, a belief in a change of moral status based on no discernible cause. As a moral marker, 14 days makes no sense. It's arbitrarily set and therefore vulnerable to transgression through the persuasive promise of further scientific benefit. And 
See, this was the justification for the change of policy um, based on the argument of suffering. But if we use that as the argument, where does the moral argument come in? When do we start taking it seriously? And it's becoming increasingly apparent that the promise of embryonic stem cells lies beyond simple cell cultures and cell replacements. That's the dilemma. The technological goal is to produce more advanced cells and even tissues, organs, and possibly limb primordia, arms and legs. Um, producing such complex tissues and organs and limbs may require the intricate cell interactions and little microenvironments that are available now only in natural gestation. Well, that's the Dickey Amendment. Maybe I'll come back to that later. So this is the way it works in natural embryogenesis. Cells exist, including stem cells, the pink cell, exist in a very complex three-dimensional spatiotemporal dynamic, which induces the, the very fragile dynamics of natural growth and differentiation. During embry embryogenesis, the embryo controls all this, but when you isolate the cells in the dish, you have to do it artificially, and it's very, very complicated. In the natural environment, it's very subtle, and the refinements of organs and different forms of the body are produced in a perfect synchrony of process. So, for example, consider the human hand. It begins as a small bud off the trunk of the embryo. The, see the little blip there? It, it, this happens um, through extraordinary orchestration of cell interactions. It progressively unfolds in form. But once it's established, this little bud, once it's initiated after about the fifth or the sixth day, you can actually take this bud off of the embryo and it will continue to grow. If it's given a proper nourishing environment, it'll grow as an independent unit. And I've seen just such a little hand. I was walking through um, a lab in um, a high-tech bio, biotechnology lab where a friend of mine worked. And he came, we came around a corner into a lab, and he picked up a test, and he said, look in there. And I looked down, and there was this little human hand about three-eighths of an inch across. And I, I said to him, where'd you get that? And he said, oh, we grew it. We took an early aborted fetus, about five weeks, and we snipped off this almost microscopic little bud from the limb bud, and we put that into the abdominal space of a special mouse designed not to reject it immunologically, and we grew it. And it, it just kept growing because the blood vessels grew into it, and it grew up, and it just got bigger and bigger. They did this with a heart. They did this with a leg bone. You can grow human parts apart from the whole once the dynamics are set by the early embryo. And I looked at that little hand, and I thought to myself, and let, let me show you how this hand develops. So it starts as a little bud. This is a slow slide. So it starts as a little bud. Come on. Oh, there it is. Anyway, it grows out. So it starts as a little paddle, and then it, the little fingers emerge. Anyway, I looked down at that little hand in the test tube, and I thought, this is fantastic. One day we might be able to grow hands for people with amputations. And then I thought to myself, but this was going to be somebody's little hand. And I thought, I remembered my own children's little hand lying across mommy's breast while she was feeding. And I thought, this is, this is a poignant dilemma. But if hands may or may not be grown someday, and that might be pretty hard, but, but far easier it would be to grow organs kidneys, livers, hearts. Scientists in Israel have already established that human kidney primordia taken from a seven to eight week old aborted fetus can be successfully grown in mice. A feat proclaimed 
by the scientists who did it as a breakthrough that might one day help save thousands of patients waiting for transplants. Well, where did they think they were going to get these? Obviously from seven- to eight-week-old fetuses. There are 70,000 Americans on dialysis waiting for kidney transplants, 17 die a day. It's a compelling argument from suffering. Furthermore, several years ago, it was announced that a scientist in China had successfully sustained in vitro a human heart severed from its source in a seven-week-old aborted fetus. I want to wait for that one. So the benefits of implanting embryos in order to harvest them and cloned would be the best because then they wouldn't be rejected. Create, implant, gestate, and harvest to get organs to save lives. It's a pretty, pretty compelling argument. The public pressure that's already worked to use the early human embryo will get restless when the cures don't come as fast as people have hoped, and they won't. They may eventually come. I'm not negative. I'm just saying there will be pressure for later stage use of embryos. Over the past six years, I've been on six continents, and I've asked people all over the world, if you had a three-year-old, would you clone, implant, harvest, gestate and harvest? And two-thirds of the people put up their hand as I go higher and higher. Last year, I spoke at Calgary Medical Center, and three-fourths of the students, nurses, and doctors put their hand up. They would harvest a six-month-old fetus to get the parts. So different people have different limits to the duration of gestation they find morally acceptable. But in light of the current sanction of abortion up to and beyond the end of the second trimester, it's difficult to argue that creation, gestation, and sacrifice of a clone to save an existing life is a large leap in the logic of justification. The argument is made that if abortion is legal, that if a developing life can be terminated with no reason given, then why not for a good reason? And one must admit, there is a certain perverse logic in this argument. And you think this is just talk by, you know, frivolous people? No. Here's, a, here's Julian Savalescu. I debate, debated him here in New York six months ago. He's a, he's a physician. He's the head of a... Of a, a practical ethics center at Oxford University, he says, it is morally required that we employ cloning to produce embryos or fetuses for the sake of providing cells, tissues, or even organs for therapy followed by abortion of the embryo or fetus. And you may have seen just last week Richard Gardner, a very prominent developmental biologist, called for the use of human embryos, of human organs taken from aborted fetuses. And then a couple days later, this guy named Apple in the Huffington Post made a whole set of arguments with, I thought, chilling uh, resonances to this. So, look, we, this is a different planet to me. I don't know how you feel about it, but I'm perfectly upfront about it. This is not the kind of world I want to live in. I don't think a decent society be, builds the foundations of its biomedical science on the creation and destruction of human embryos and fetuses. So you can disagree with me, and I'm glad to talk with you about it, but I don't th think there's any value in my pretending I, you know, ambivalent about it. So I, I want to spend just two minutes, and then I want to conclude. I know I'm going a little too long, Mark. Sorry. Always happens. I'm from a university. <laughs> so just let me tell you what the President's Council did. We drew a distinction between totipotent, the capacity to produce the full range of, of tissues in an organized, integrated way, and pluripotent, the capacity to produce all the cell types, but not as an organism. Stems, uh, embryos are totipotent. Stem, embryonic stem cells are pluripotent. And I sat there listening to the arguments 
between us a very difficult argument. President Bush did not produce a rubber stamp committee. There was a full range of views in our council, and it was a very difficult debate. And I sat there listening to the debate, felt sympathies with both sides. I'm a physician. I have a handicapped child. I felt, gosh, can't we solve this? Can't we find a third option? And I came up with the idea of altered nuclear transfer. And the 30-second version is we change a gene or we change some factor in the initial ingredients so it's not a deficiency in a being but an insufficiency in the starting materials such that all we get is a single tissue lineage. There's a, of a specific cell type, the type from which you get the embryonic stem cells. And I just don't have time to go into this because I talked too much, but, so let me not go into it. But basically... The argument for this is that there is a precedent in medicine, a tumor called a teratoma that actually produces advanced tissues but in a disorganized way. And if nature can do it, we can do it. And we've identified a specific gene to do it in. And the reason this works morally and it's been vetted, uh, Cardinal Levada wrote a letter to President Bush asking him to take this project seriously. This has been vetted by conservative Catholic and evangelical moral philosophers. I think it's a very good project. It works perfectly in mice. We're doing it now in monkeys. It's working perfectly in monkeys. It looks very hopeful. The reason it works morally is because a human organism is a very complex interactive system of dynamic parts. It's, to use a California hippie metaphor, it's like a, a geodesic dome. They like The hippies like the Geodesic Dome because it was communist. If you took anybody out, the whole thing fell apart. Well, that's kind of a good thing to see it that way. Well, in embryos, it's true, too. If you take out certain crucial parts, you don't have an organism. All you've got is biochemistry. Um, and there are subsets, however, that will develop along a tra trajectory for a while, but not as organisms. And that's what we do. We change a specific gene. We knock out a factor in the egg, even before using nuclear transfer. We we get something that produces just a lineage of cells. Okay, I think we can solve this. Yamanaka thinks we can solve this. Why are we fighting about it? Why are the raising the heat in the culture wars? I'm not clear. I've spent seven years trying to convince Congress that I'm going to take a couple seconds and say a few things, Mark. Sorry, I just, I just have to tell you guys this. So I, I worked very hard to get the Congress to solve this in a constructive way. I finally got Senator Specter on this edge and Senator Santorum, opposite poles in the stem cell, uh, even if they are both from Pennsylvania. They were opposite ends. They came together, did the Santorum-Specter bill. It passed the Senate 100 to nothing. They sent it to the House on the same day, the day before, the president was going to make his first veto of the override for his stem cell policy. The House got this, and they looked at it, and certain people in the House said, well, you can't give him this. It's too positive. We don't want to give him something positive to sign while he does the veto. So they rejected it. By 12 votes in the House, it got rejected with a, because they needed two-thirds to do it on suspension. And why? For what reason? Then Coleman and Isaacson did the same thing. This time it was getting closer to the election, and certain parties wanted the stem cell issue up there, so it only passed 70 to 28, but the same bill. Finally, President Bush said no, and he, I, I stood behind him in the White House when he signed an executive order funding these projects. And sad to say, and I don't really mean this politically, I'm hoping for our president, but unfortunately, Barack Obama uh, overrid, overrode not just the August 2001 executive order, but he overruled this executive order too ordering the NIH to fund these alternative projects. 
So we're left now without government support for the third option, which I think is tragic because we can solve this. We've got enough things we disagree on. Why do we want to disagree on this too? Let me make just a couple of closing comments and then we can have a few questions. So, look, what an amazing thing this is. And I, these are my personal perspectives, so I, I want to make that plain. I, I just want to close with my own thoughts. So what a mystery all this is. How can it be that we start out as a single cell? We know that we're the same person as an infant and as an old person, but we were the same being from the beginning. Where did we begin? We began at the beginning. Leo Alexander who wrote a very compelling essay. Did you get copies, put copies of that out there, Mark? No. Now, this is a very compelling essay called, called uh, Medicine Under a, uh, a Dictatorship. It's about Nazi medicine. And Leo Alexander was a physician, and he wrote portions of the Nuremberg Code, and he was there for the Nuremberg trials. And this is what he said at the end of it. He said, whatever proportions these crimes finally assumed, it became evident to all who investigated them that they had started from tiny beginnings. The beginnings were at first merely a subtle shift in emphasis in the basic attitudes of the physicians. Lots of tiny beginnings involved in this discussion, aren't there? What a mystery it is that we start small like the unfolding of the chambered nautilus begin from a single, almost microscopic entity and open, expand to the fullness of the universe. Well, some people say, okay, this is all compelling and I've been accused of adding too much emotion to this, but why shouldn't emotion be part of this? We all feel emotion about our own lives. But some people say, how can something so small, so tiny, be so important when faced against the huge and very troubling reality of human disease. Well, I don't know quite what to say, except size is not a measure of moral meaning. It's true. From here, you can't see the embryo, at least the one-cell embryo. But from here, you can't see the people. From here, you can't even see our Earth. And from here, you can't even see our galaxy. So 350 years ago, Blaise Pascal said, human existence is located between infinities, between the infinitely small and the infinitely large. We're right there in the middle of the size dimensions of the universe. He went on to say, by size, the universe surrounds and swallows me up as a dot. By thought, I encompass the universe. Well, what kind of a thought could encompass the universe? I came across this quote last night, and it struck me as very powerful. This is, this is from Julian of Norwich, and she was 30 years old, and she was severely ill, and she thought she was dying. She was suffering deeply, and believing that she was on death's door, she had a series of powerful, intense visions, and this is what she wrote reflecting on her being. And in this, he showed me something small, no bigger than a hazelnut, lying in the palm of my hand, as it seemed to me, and it was as round as a ball. I looked at it with the eye of my understanding and thought, what can this be? I was amazed that it could last, 
for I thought that because of its littleness, it would suddenly have fallen into nothing. And I was answered in my understanding. It lasts and always will because God loves it. And thus everything has being through the love of God. C.S. Lewis said, and he knew about suffering, C.S. Lewis said, we should answer all of our problems with more love, not less love. Think about that. Think about that special love that nourished, protected, and guided your existence in the dawn of your life. So now, as we think about what we should do with our advancing biomedical technology, we should remember what St. John of the Cross said. In the evening of life, we will all be judged by love. Thank you. Sorry, I talked a long time, didn't I? It's my watch. Um, Thank you, uh, Dr. Holbutt. We have time for questions and answers. I only ask you, please please, uh, keep it to about 12 syllables on the question. Is that possible? It's not possible. Okay. Uh, Please frame your questions in the form of a question. Uh, I will leave it at that, and I I will be strict, unfortunately. But we do have some time, so please. Uh, Professor, Doctor, um, I understand you say that I was very impressed by your statement that Mr. Yamanaka said if you think this is an easy subject, you should think further. The second thing you said was we grew a hand, and if we use it for someone else, you're really using someone else's hand. The one thing I found missing in your presentation was the possibility that there could be an answer without using an embryo. My understanding is that there are stem cells that are not part of embryos that somehow can be made into parts. Have you addressed that or have I misunderstood it? And could you now tell me, is the Bush theory that we don't need um, embryos because we can use separate stem cells a possibility? So this is framed as an argument from adult stem cell research versus embryonic stem cell research. I personally have never endorsed that division. I think the use of these so-called embryonic stem cells are now relabeled pluripotent. I think there's valuable science to be gained through them. I don't think we can do everything with what we call classically adult stem cells. So therefore, I think we need to find a way to get the same cells, functionally same cells, as embryonic stem cells. And what I gave short shrift to in my talk, which I would like to very much because it's my personal project, I'd like to explain to you how we can get those cells. We can do it in mice. We can do it in monkeys. Why can't we do it in human beings? We probably can, almost certainly can. We can solve this. We can get the same cells, do all the same research as embryonic stem cell research. So why are we fighting about it? Because we aren't, because somehow this is, there's lots of egos involved and lots of pride involved, and there's a bigger agenda to use embryos for a lot more things. And I'm troubled by that agenda. I'm troubled by it not because of the number of embryos only, but because of the fact that I think it will also be later and later stages of embryos. 
President Bush shares that concern. I, I met with him in the Oval Office. I talked to him about this. And when you deal with President Bush on this issue, you can't help but feel the, the power of his convictions on this. He, this is not, was not just pandering to some group or something. At least that's not my interpretation of it. Um, maybe I'm naive. I'm, I'm not from Washington, you know, and politicians are very persuasive people. I, I don't want to say that, actually, because in the depth of me, when I talked with the president about it, I felt he knew this cost him. He knew it cost his party, but he felt it was the right thing to do. And his, he did fund embryonic type stem cell, embryonic stem cell research, but he just didn't fund the destruction of new embryos, and he challenged our nation. I think he had wisdom and courage in his policy to challenge our nation to find an answer that all Americans can live with. So I think we can do that. I don't think we have to f have a false distinction between pluripotent and adult stem cells. We can do everything. Why would, well, this is a very personal perspective because as you probably guess, I believe in God, but would God deny us the, the possibility of good? We have to find a good way to do good. My question has to do with the possibility of having a civil and constructive uh, conversation on the matter uh, between people who have obviously such uh, strong disagreements. Uh, I'm, I'm impressed by uh, your repeated reference to people as friends who are doing research which I uh, gather uh, you would morally disapprove of. Um, you're obviously in, in uh, a, a construct I, I presume then you're in a, a constructive civil conversation with these people on these issues. Um, so I'm wondering, how does that work within the scientific community? Are you, what's your, how well are you regarded at Stanford? Do people regard you as a religious nut? Um, or uh, do they respect you as a scientist, scientist but uh, lament the fact that you have these uh, unfortunate convictions? Um, you also mentioned the unfortunate uh, political factors which make which lead people to want to make this a political issue and therefore want to draw lines in places that you don't believe lines should be drawn. Um, well, okay, so in, among scientists, among politicians, and in the community, the, the country as a whole, how do we promote a civil and constructive conversation? It's a, it's a very important question. In, in the media also, obviously. I... I um, I think one of the things we do is, first of all, acknowledge how difficult the subject is and that acknowledge that both sides have good intentions on this for the most part. I mean, that's, Father Benedict always says to me, the one doctrine of, of faith you don't need to, to preach in New York is original sin. But, but, but apart from that, I think most people do have good intentions here, and I think, and I, I think respecting each other as, as human beings is the first step in that, and listening carefully. And I've tried to do it, uh, and I think there are others trying to do it. I'm working with some very, very good people. I and mean, Rudolf Yenish at MIT, who does not, does not think that using early embryos is a bad thing, did my project. Um, he's, one of the, he's probably the top stem cell biologist in the world, and he did my project. And so he was trying to find a constructive answer. Hans Schuler at the Max Planck Institute is working with me now, trying to solve our problem. He, he, he too, doesn't share my moral concerns, but he wants to find an answer. But many people don't because they actually want to go on and use embryos for a lot of other things. You just got to acknowledge that reality, um, that many people think we should be able to use embryos and maybe even fetuses for a lot of scientific projects. And from a purely scientific standpoint, they have a strong argument. 
It's just that they're moral concerns. As to my situation at Stanford, I'm going to actually turn that question over to one of my students who's sitting in the back there, Kevin Combo, and you can briefly, without exaggeration, tell them a little bit, maybe, Kevin, or if you're comfortable. Speak up. I can't hear you. Kevin is from Kenya. Uh, so uh, I was fortunate enough to come to Stanford uh, about four years ago, and uh, that's when I met Dr. Halbert at a tea, I believe, uh, with the, at the president's house. And since then, he's been an uh, amazing mentor and professor to me. He's consistently taught one of the more interesting and popular classes at campus. So granted, I'd say perhaps, I guess, on a policy level, he does come uh, perhaps not the university's best friend. They do value him as a teacher, and the students love him, and I think, uh, you know, he, he, they've kept him on, and we've been very fortunate to have him for all the time that he's been there. So that's my, that's my small piece. <laughs> But to add a little element to that, I do have enemies. And it's, in fact, those enemies were trying to get me booted from the university. And it's very tough, tough environment. And, and my feeling about it was, it, it was troubling and very hard, to be honest with you. I, I don't want to whine about it, but it was very hard to be attacked within the university. I've, I've taught 6,000 students now. I, I've, for 20 years, over 20 years, I've worked maybe 60, 80 hours a week for my university. And to feel like this issue was worthy of violating the most fundamental principles of academic freedom, at least to some people, some of my colleagues, was hard to take. But, you know, it's a tough world. We, we, we just do what we can, and that's it. So we, we really need to all take seriously the fact that our, our civilization is grounded in fundamental moral principles, and if we lose them, it's like losing the pillars that are the foundation of our being. And if, if, if we don't stand up for those, I think you can see just in this realm alone where it could head. Yes, I found uh, your argument about um, alternate nuclear transfer a very compelling resolution. Regarding the original uh, embryonic research, which is the more controversial argument, um, I have two questions, if I'm allowed. You don't have to answer the first one if I'm only allowed one. But the first is uh, <laughs> regarding Dr. Francis Collins' very um, good argument in his book, The Language of God. Do you, um, what do you think about the twinning argument where, uh, regarding spirits? Uh, you're only you know, at the twinning stage. Um, if we're only given two spirits at the time of twinning, are we not allowed to use the original embryo on the first day? My second main question is, um, how certain can we be regarding our thoughts and our convictions on this very important issue? And if we cannot be certain, because this is not a matter of direct revelation, which is the primary source of truth, at least um, in my view, then is not the proper stance of humility to refrain from making powerful dictates and restrictions on such a powerful tool for good? Thank you. All right, I want to answer both of those, okay? First of all, the twinning argument is a tough issue. I mean, it's odd. You don't think that people say, well, are there two souls from the beginning? I, we in the President's Council didn't discuss souls at all. We just talked about what could be known by universal, publicly accessible reasoning. And we reasoned that there was a living human organism present from the beginning. Now, when twinning takes place, what happens is either mechanical or biochemical processes divide the cells apart from each other. 
You know, it's an early time. Twinning doesn't happen except for the first maybe five to seven days at the longest. Um, so what happens? What causes twinning? Something disrupts the dynamics of that unified organism such that the cells are separated. And then they independently heal themselves, but in two distinct trajectories of development. So I use twinning to make the argument that in the beginning, in a normal, unchallenged, undisrupted embryo, you have an organism because what is it that keeps all the cells from becoming embryos? What keeps them from forming twins every time? It's a dynamic of unity, a harmonious whole. And when it's disrupted, because nature is full of healing powers, it just gets healed in two tra independent trajectories. So it's very clear to everybody you have a living organism to begin with, and then it divides into two living organisms. Now, whether they're two distinct ones, or one continues and the other buds off of it, and what, how um, the issue of souls should be related to that, I just, I just have no idea. But I, I tend to think that soul is the principle of life in the being, and I, at least, I don't know what else souls are. We could let Father Benedict describe this. But from a public pluralistic perspective, I think the argument from twinning does not preclude the dignity of the embryo in its one-cell stage. It, it doesn't answer a lot of questions. There's a lot of questions we don't know the answers to. Um, and what was the essence of the second question? How do, you, how do you, if there's uncertainty, how do we proceed? Well, it's such a hard question. I mean, some people say, well, there's suffering. It's very real, like the beginning movie. And therefore, we should let that reality dominate. But if suffering is the argument for proceeding, where does that stop? The argument for suffering has no bottom. And by the way, there's not that much uncertainty. The truth is that most, most scientists, in fact, I, I'd like to challenge anybody who doesn't agree with this. I'll stake my entire professional life on this. There is a living human organism at the completion of fertilization. And that should, I think that should be enough to qualify as a boundary. All the other boundaries are arbitrary. Believe me, they won't hold. And I'm sure of it. They won't hold because somebody gets off the train at four days, 14 days. What if the cells turn out to be good at 16, especially important? 30? Do I hear 60? Do I hear 90? I mean, just wait. You're going to hear all the arguments now. They're coming. And I think the only safe place we draw a boundary is this. Organism, living human organism in continuity with its life across from fertilization to natural death. That's who you are. G.K. Chesterton had a great metaphor for this. He said that little boys, this is where girls played soccer, little boys are playing soccer on a, on a field, but right at the edge of the field there are cliffs go down 1,000 feet. So where are the little boys playing soccer? In the middle 20 yards, because nobody wants to do a corner kick, you can imagine. And then somebody comes and they build a strong fence right on the boundaries of the field. Now they can play to the edges. See, that's what we need to do. We need to protect ourselves from the dangers of violating the fundamental principle, and yet make clear boundaries so that scientists can come into the edges of the field and do their work, which I'm in favor of. I testified to the, to the uh, National Academy of Sciences on the issue of human-animal chimeras, joining human and animal cells. I think there are some, I don't believe in creating organisms that way, but there are some uses of chimerizations where you put a human blood system into a mouse or something. I think that's okay. But we need to define these boundaries. We need to put this fence up. Otherwise, science is going to end up playing in the middle 20 yards, or else we're going to spill over the edges. 